You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to www.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty has never been signed. The so-called Nation of Oz was and is a crime scene. We pay respect to elders past and present and emerging of the Kulin Nation and stand in solidarity with Indigenous people across this continent. That is the sound of Tom Waits' Big in Japan, and this is the sound of Uprise Radio on Wednesday afternoon. My name's Jackson. Thanks for joining us again. And in the studio with me is James, who may well be big in Japan because he's just got back from there. How big are you in Japan, James? Well, in terms of size, um, I could clearly see far into the distance, even through the millions of other people, because I was on stilts bigger than most other people in Japan. I see. You could see above people's umbrellas. Okay, it was raining while you were there. See, that's, that's, that's deduction yeah. right there. <laughs> so you were on a study tour of Japan. What was it like? What did you do? Um, so we, we started off in Hiroshima um, and then I spent the rest of the time in Tokyo through its various um, huge districts of um, wonder and delight. And yeah, it was it was a it was a really amazing trip. I think that being able to see um, you know at least parts of the country while also having a political kind of discussion and uh, debate and uh, insights from locals and people that have been in the country for a long time is a really amazing way to see the country. Yeah, so you're sharing a classroom with Japanese students who are studying international politics. Is that right? So a lot of the time we had uh, both Japanese students that were studying global affairs or something, yeah, international politics or some variation from their university, and also a collection of kind of international students who were there from various other places around the world as well. So the little bit of news that we... I obviously haven't just been in Japan, but a little bit of news that we get uh, coming out of Japan often relates to their fractured relationships with China and North Korea from an international politics perspective. Was that what you found was of most concern to Japanese students in your classes? Or like what what what's kind of on their minds when they think about Japan's place in the geopolitical uh, order? Well, I think by and large, most people, including students who are studying politics do not want to talk about politics at all. And I think um, from from some of the lecturers, we were they really wanted us to engage in some difficult topics or try to bring forward some of that kind of discussion as well to, to I guess, change some of those kind of discussions or difficulties that they have in class. That was something we, we did have some discussion and, and a lecture on, I guess, looking at some of the big picture relations between the US, uh, Russia, China, 
and I guess a little bit about um, Australia in there as well. But I think, I guess one of the main kind of things that, or two of the main kind of points that when you get down to it, that people are wanting to kind of talk about, I guess, is the Article 9 and the um, potential remilitarization of Japan and climate change. You know, I think that... Mm. Um, As although, an island nation, yeah. Yeah, although it took a while to kind of probe people to talk about it, it's, you know, they have had constant, I guess, really environmental disasters there of, you know, even on the train, every couple of days you see uh, some train line, you know, further down uh, in the south of the country is not working because there's a typhoon. Wow. Um, but there were obviously really um, large typhoons, I guess, about six to eight weeks before before I was there. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, in 2011, obviously we had the Fukushima disaster. Which was caused by an earthquake, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and then there was uh, four or five earthquakes mm. while I was there. Uh, oh, while you were there? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, these things, are, they're constant. And, you know, and a whole section of Japan is already, is below sea level. So as the sea rises, that those places are going to disappear. Well, yeah. So it's very much uh, forefront of their minds. I mean, maybe we'll begin a little bit with Article 9, though. It's an interesting... Uh, topic for discussion. I mean, Japan, like a lot of the world, appears to be increasingly on a kind of, not a war footing, but a militarily aggressive footing. I know that um, Japan and India and Australia and the US signed a big new quadrilateral security agreement uh, back in the end of 2017, um, which you know, refers to the Asia-Pacific region as the Indo-Pacific region, you know, that has all these kind of subtle ways of uh, prom- promoting Indian, Japanese, US and Australian naval superiority in this much contested region. Obviously, China have a lot of interest in those, those trade routes as well around uh, Singapore and Malaysia and stuff. Uh, but Article 9 is a really interesting handbrake on Japanese uh, militaristic ambition because obviously the Japanese lost World War Two after gaining huge swathes of Southeast Asia and South uh, and East Asia. Um, and the their constitution that they wrote in 1947 with, with the USA as their occupier at the time, charged with reforming the Japanese political machine, um, you know, stated quite clearly that the Japanese people, this is Article 9 of the Japanese constitution, the Japanese people forever renounce war as a sovereign right of the nation and land, sea and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be maintained. Now, they do have a self-defense force uh, under, <clears throat> and they have two major U.S. naval bases there as well. And interestingly, they already spend uh, $46.6 billion per year on, just in, sorry, in 2019 alone, according to the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute. So why is there this, I understand the discussion is that they should be changing Article 9 to enable them to have a more fully functioning military. If they're I mean, they're the ninth biggest spender globally already. What? Why? Why is it a debate? Well, I think that um, for Prime Minister Abe, who you know is now the longest-serving Japanese Prime Minister, I think it probably goes back to there's a his his dad was a member of um, Parliament as well. Like he's really, I guess, a part of the Japanese aristocratic kind of institutions, and I think you know there's a lot of traditional Japanese kind of uh, culture and idea that they want to be a big force in the world. And while, yeah, I think it's $50, um, $50 billion, something that, that 
you said the yeah, 40, spending. Yep, that's about right. Forty six point nine or something. Um, military spending, and I think that it's clearly that there. It's not a. Um, you know, if you look at other nations that have, have taken, I guess, more of a pacifist kind of route, they don't do that and then also build up their military. So I guess it's leading towards something. And I think that it was a couple of years ago there were a couple of amendments made to Article 9. And it's really a constant kind of idea about whether to go forward with that or not. And from the kind of people that we were talking with and... Um, went to the Australian embassy as well and heard from some of the um, high-up sort of people within the Australian military as well. Their, their thoughts are that it won't happen at any time kind of soon. Uh, so Why? I, Why do they think it won't happen? I think it will just take a big shift in thinking for that to happen. And I guess, you know, why? Why would they want it to happen? I think that there's clearly, you know, a lot of discussion around the rise of China in the region and India is already, you know, a really big power. And I think Japan for in a lot of ways is a underestimated how big a kind of economy and bigger kind of influence it really has globally. And I think that that is probably a reason why some people within Japan want to push that further to say, well, we could be an even bigger influence. Mm. And I think China's rise gives more idea that they don't want to be bullied out of their region, mm. especially, you know, to some a country that they have, you know, occupied in the past parts of and things like that. Think of themselves as, you know, a superior to, if you look through the history yeah. books for a long time, both China and Korea have been invaded and conquered by uh, Japanese imperial forces, which is a big part of their mentality up until mm. the end of World War II. It was really interesting looking at that Japanese constitution that they wrote with the US because obviously the US and Japan are really strong allies and it's quite an incredible example of a wartime enemy, fierce enemy, becoming a peacetime ally, such a staunch peacetime ally as well. You know, really the, the buttress for the US against what they saw as a creeping communism sweeping through Asia. You know, Japan very rapidly became this incredibly important um, bulwark against uh, that, that change. And Japan's role in the Korean War uh, and role in Korea in World War Two uh, was really significant, you know, as a staging post for American troops during the Korean War and as, you know, an aggressor uh, during World War Two. So they have a very complex relationship with the, with the Koreans as well. But it was interesting to me that one of the ways they get around Article 9 already, and they've been able to build up their self-defense force to such a huge amount, spending $50 billion a year on uh, defense equipment when you're not supposed to have an army, is Article 13 uh, of their constitution, which uh, states, all Japanese people shall be respected as individuals. Their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness shall, to the extent that it does not interfere with the public welfare, be the supreme consideration in legislation and in other governmental affairs. So any threat, you know, uh, future threat, current threat, you know, North Korean intercontinental ballistic missiles, for example, can be interpreted as a specific threat to the supreme consideration of people's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I just found it, you know, that that line is, you know, directly lifted from the US constitution. It just shows the level of influence that the US had in setting up the modern Japan that we know. And I think you have to look at Japan's aims in the region as deeply tied to, to US aims. I mean, there are other things throughout, like the whole constitution is very much, it looks like it is direct from the US constitution. Things like 
freedom of speech and things like that as well are much a part of that. And I think that some of those are not negative no, things, no. perhaps. I um, wish we had a Bill of Rights here in Australia. But but it is, it is interesting. But I think it, it is very much uh, a country that sits in between or, you know, walks within the raindrops of some of these kind of issues because while it has such a strong US backing and a, a very much at times US influence culture, it still wants to maintain and does kind of maintain its own position in the world. I think much more, obviously Australia is a much smaller nation in, in lots of ways, mm. but we don't, we don't maintain that same kind of uh, ideas and culture that Japan does. And I think part of that also comes from being a colonized country here. Mm-hmm. We don't want to embrace any kind of Aboriginal um, culture and ideas mm. yet that those things are still very much a part of Japanese culture. They have a real history that they're, yeah. they're happy to embrace. Absolutely. Of, yeah. yeah. I think that's a really key difference. It's, um, I think one of the things that is interesting about article nine, I mean, I, I can't give any definitive reasons of, you know, whether it will happen or not, or just going on what. And is it even relevant the, considering the size of the military already? It's more about a sense of like um, national identity than any. I practical. guess I think it, it can become relevant when, I think, you know, say, for instance, some of the, you know, global wars that have happened in Iraq, Afghanistan, things like that, Mm -hmm. they haven't played a military role within that, but they've given financial aid to some of those things. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if wars break out in that kind of region, then will will they then want to be involved? I think there's a couple of things. I think there's a couple of disputed islands, um, which Abe is really interested in trying to solve or whatever. Be sure um, our Japanese make them no longer disputed is his yeah, interest. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, one of the major ones belongs to Russia. So, and they're, they're kind of, I'm pretty sure they're kind of down near um, Okinawa, which is obviously where the massive US base is. Mm. So that's a, that's a very interesting kind of dynamic, all of that mm. there. But the other thing is that the Talisman Sabre military exercises, which are joint Australian-US training exercises that happen in Queensland, mm-hmm. I think they've been happening for 10 to 10 years or so now. I I can't remember the exact amount of time, but for the first time earlier this year, Japan also took part in those. Mm. Um, So that's interesting in terms of why they're taking part in that. Mm. They had a lot of, they bought um, tanks and, um, you know, types of things over that were... Offensive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can argue that really any of this kind of militarism is offensive. Yes. Uh, or you could also argue that all military should be defensive. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got a defense force, then it shouldn't be practicing offensive kind of moves at all. Do you know much about Operation Talisman Sabre? Is it a, an offensive set of war games or is it a defensive set of war games? Um, I think my understanding is they, they practice both kinds of scenarios. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting in the terms of that for Japan, but also in terms of its relationship with Australia and the US. It sees both of them as major allies, militarily, strategically, economically mm. entwined. And, interesting and they, are, that, they are one of our biggest trading partners after, yeah. after China. And it's interesting, you know, like you said before, about those quad meetings with mm. India. On the surface, why is Australia involved in that? Yet we are, you know. <laughs> so it is kind of interesting in a small scale country that we are is still playing a role in those kind of talks. Mm. 
big uh, geographically though. We have a large northern coast which kind of you know sits along those those trade routes as well. I think you've also got to just lay it against the increasing ability of the Chinese military to conduct international offensive missions. You know they've been in the last decade training their military to you know <clears throat> under the guise of rescuing Chinese nationals from you know war zones in Chad or whatever. But they you know they really are developing that capacity and. From a geo-strategic position, you've got a question why. Um, I want to just play a little bit of music to kind of break up the show a little bit. But, um, you know, obviously we've spoken a little about the U.S. and uh, Japanese alliance. Um, and Japan is a or has been seen as this great success story of U.S. free market capitalism, which they obviously injected into uh, Japan, which was kind of almost feudal in the way that its large companies and uh, land holdings were dealt with pre-World War II. But I think it's worth talking about the state of the Japanese economy uh, today and what you uh, saw over there, and some of the other cultural baggage that always rides shotgun uh, with with uh, with capitalism. Um, but first, maybe we can hear a song from uh, Shonen Knife, uh, who are a Japanese punk band who I think were recently in Melbourne. Yeah, I saw them uh, in November before I went to Japan. Good show. Yeah, it was part of the Lost Lands Festival. Mm-hmm. They're, uh, I guess, in the tradition of uh, you know the Clash or something like that. Yeah, cool. Uh, Well, this uh, is their song, Trojan Knife. This is their song, Party. Shonen Knife with Party, and you might be heading off to a Christmas party tonight Mm. or later this week. If you do are, then um, please enjoy yourself in moderation. And just a reminder, you are tuned in to 3CR, and this is Uprise Radio. And um, so I mentioned at the start that we began in Japan in Hiroshima, which obviously I think, you know, to most people, the first thing that they think of is a nuclear bomb that was dropped there. And 
I think as we kind of go into a discussion around the influence of uh, capitalism and US, I guess, centric kind of capitalism, and then, you know, from from there, I think it's important to kind of touch on this because, and, you know, and it relates to the things World War Two were talking about before. And it's not just, um, you know, obviously a nuclear bomb dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also just the impact of the bombing of Tokyo as well mm. uh, was huge. But, you know, I, th- I think, yeah, actually more people died in the Tokyo bombings than the initial uh, bombings from Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the thing that, you know, lives on from the uh, nuclear bomb is something that I think is much more profound than the impact of the fire know, bombing. firebombing. Mm. And it reminded me, I guess, of some of the museums that are in Vietnam and you see these, you know, rooms and rooms of people of generations affected by Agent, Agent Orange. Mm. And we, we had a survivor from the uh, nuclear bomb who I think she was around nine at the time. And, yeah, there's a lot to convey from that. But I think one thing that she said is that, you know, the people who are younger than her, they don't remember what happened. And the people that are older than her are no longer kind of really in a position to tell the story. So she's she's telling the story um, to us about the effects of nuclear warfare, of nuclear bombs, so that we can continue that story on because soon mm. they're not going to be survivors to be able to, to do that. Um, so I found that was a really powerful kind of message to, um, you know, kind of leave there with that responsibility, I guess, to mm. continue to tell people and talk to people about the effects of, of war and mm. of that kind of really extreme warfare as well. Yeah, because it's obviously not just the moment the bomb hits, it's the years of radiation poisoning and the damage to the ability to grow anything in those spaces, like such profound impacts. It is amazing, you know, as a as a amateur student of history to see that a country, you know, you, talk, you mentioned the firebombing and the nuclear bombs um, on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like the firebombing went for months and they took out cities, you know, the size of Detroit and Philadelphia, you know, city after city just reduced to nothing, hundreds and hundreds, millions dead, millions of people dead. And then within a five-year period, you know, by 1950 or 51 with the beginning of the Korean War, they had this staunch ally that that remains to this day. And, you know, while you highlighted the cultural differences that Japan has proudly held on to, they have inherited a lot of... um, cultural cues from the states as well like obviously they play a lot of baseball uh you know things like horse racing golf um you know a kind of enormous military spending buttressed by a paranoia about near neighbors you know uh, real or imagined endemic poverty wealth inequality and a kind of you know which surprised me but i did look into it after what you were saying on your return like a kind of fairly virulent racism um, in the country, uh, probably more open than the racism in the US even, um, and sexism, you know, which, you know, you, you can't have sexism without capitalism, it can be um, can be argued, you know, like it's all about uh, turning people against uh, one another so they don't uh, form bonds of solidarity. Uh, and yeah, there's, there's some really, um, you know, um, very public and obvious examples of, of, of these problems um, in Japan at the moment. Was that, I'm happy to go into some, you know, journalistic references, this bit, but you've just been there. I mean, did you see uh, poverty at a, at a really large scale in Japan at the moment? Oh, just, just to touch on the bombing before we move on, I think the reason that um, America wanted to bomb, to drop the nuclear bomb on Tokyo, but 
they decided that they'd already bombed too much of it, they wouldn't be able to see the effects of it. Mm, wow. Which is a um, terrible Chilling. image um, to think about. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing that probably a lot of people think about uh, when you think about Tokyo is, you know, huge lights everywhere and that kind of like aspect of, of capitalism, mm, of shining know, huge cities. amounts of people and technology and things like Consumerism. that. Yeah. But is, is that American though? I think that that's just a product of capitalism. And I think in the way that uh, Tokyo, you know, all of those kind of electronics and things like that, they're made in Tokyo. You know, they're not, they might be, you know, borrowing and importing some of the ideas from, but they're certainly making them their own. And I think it's... Yeah, video games is a good example of a... Japanese cultural yeah, and product. Yeah, being exported yeah. out to other countries. Yeah, sorry, so, they're an ally of capitalism. The US yeah. is just one of the most prominent examples of But it, I think it's capitalism. interesting in that, though, because while in Australia we might have taken those things on and we, we, we've got a, you know, whatever, part of that kind of culture here. Big malls, big cars. Yeah, whereas Japan are like, that's a cool idea. What would that look like in Japan? And mm. then they, they work out a way for it to work. Capitalism yeah. with Japanese characteristics, perhaps. Yeah. But it, yeah, I think just to go on, certainly there are a lot of things, uh, sexism, I think, I certainly see, you can see aspects of it, I guess, but I had a few talks where people were talking about some of the, I guess, more extreme things about, um, you know, women being told not to wear glasses at work or being forced to wear high heels and things like that. And I guess, you know, they're the kind of sexism things you might think of or we look at things like, you know, Mad Men. Um, TV show and things like that. So there might be more blatant aspects of sexism, but obviously we still have those kind of different versions of that here. There was a story breaking uh, at the beginning of this year about a tabloid magazine um, aimed at men. It's called um, Spa Magazine, and it ranked universities in Tokyo for how willing the women in the universities were to have sex. And mm-hmm. uh, obviously it, it drew a lot of blowback um, from, from people. But w- what the magazine said they were trying to highlight was actually the growth of these um, these kind of organized parties that uh, lonely men prepay university students um, to go and have a drink with them. They're called um, guaranteed drinking parties is what the, the name, the Japanese name roughly translates as. Uh, but this, web, this um, university website wasn't created by Mark Zuckerberg, was it? It sounds exactly <laughs> like how Facebook was started. Well, yeah, a blend of Facebook and, and Tinder, I suppose, but with a payment um, aspect. And I think what's interesting there is that, you know, the amount of, you know, university students are looking to supplement their income, mm-hmm. um, you know, through selling selling themselves is an interesting aspect of that story. And then, you know, just months before, at the end of... Um, 2018, it was revealed that major medical universities in uh, Japan were deliberately rigging their entrance exams to disallow women to attend because mm. they thought it would, um, you know, uh, draw down on the, you know, um, reputation of, of the medical profession to have more women in it. Uh, it's it's interesting, you know, when you look at the cultural work that the US did when they arrived in Japan, they, you know, bought these, they, they thought they bought the idea of like feminism and civically responsible women to Japan through women's magazines and things. But of course, they bought all of the attenuant uh, problems um, of capitalism as well. Well, I think just before we finish up, and uh, I think there's a couple other things to touch on that, you know, perhaps people might want to look at in their own time or we can post some things about is... I guess, you know, it's a really overworked kind of culture as well. And I think that that's something that is really stark. I mean, you asked about the inequality. Um, you didn't necessarily see a lot of that. I mean, certainly at certain points, see 
um, people sleeping rough on the streets as we might, you know, throughout Melbourne and things like that. But what you do see is lots of, you know, people in suits leaving work or on the train at kind of, you know, nine, 10 o'clock at night and, you know, they're asleep. They look, you know, absolutely exhausted. People, you know, that I spoke to, workers and students traveling, you know, an hour to two hours each way to get to work and uni, you know, it's, that's a, that's a really difficult culture, which doesn't breed kind of uh, responses to these kind of issues either. You know, if you're working that hard, if you're having to travel that far, then you don't have time to be involved in protests or, you know, to really think about what Article 9 means or, you know, the impacts of climate change and that kind of thing. So, you know, the, the lack of unions there, I think, means that these kind of things do get lost by the wayside a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been really interesting to talk, but we are out of time. Uh, unfortunately, for another episode of Uprise Radio. In a fortnight's time, we'll be back on New Year's Day um, and we will be talking a bit about some events of the year and playing some of our favourite tracks from the year. It'll be a pretty low-key show. But uh, thanks to our special guest, James, today with his recent experience of Japan. Well, thanks to everyone for listening this year and um, we, you know, we look forward to bringing you more shows next year. And I thought we'd end with a song uh, by a Japanese band called Fishmans. Uh, this song is called Night Cruising. Night cruising been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.